Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Peace Officer is a documentary about the increasingly increasingly militarized state of America's police as told through the story of Dub Lawrence, a former sheriff who established and trained his rural state's first SWAT team only to see the same unit kill his son-in-law in a convention in a controversial standoff 30 years later. Driven by an obsessed sense of mission, Dub uses his own investigation skills to uncover the truth in this and other recent officer-involved shootings in his community while tackling the larger questions about the changing face of peace officers nationwide. We're joined today by two of the principals involved with this wonderful documentary peace officer, and that would be William Dub Lawrence, we just talked about, as well as one of the co-directors of the film Peace Officer, that would be Scott Christopherson. Gentlemen, welcome to Film School. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great, great, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, this is an issue that I've sort of personally been tracking for a long period of time, uh, and I'm so glad to be able to bring to my audience and my film school audience uh uh, this this is a fantastic documentary because it's a very even-handed documentary about this issue, about what's going on in our police uh, forces around the country. And, but it's also a very humanizing story about uh, the consequences when things don't go right and as they as they should. Uh, and I, I want to congratulate you both for uh, your participation and um, its terrific work, Scott. That you and Brad Barber, I didn't mention, is the co-director of, of Peace Officer. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Scott. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, how you came to this story, and maybe a little bit about how you got to know uh, Dub Lawrence in this. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I was playing, happened to be playing in a softball game in Utah with Dub's son, and Dub approached me after the game he knew I was a documentary film professor and said I want you to teach me how to edit um, he then took me back to his airplane hangar and showed me a two hour long analysis of his son-in-law's shooting death on Final Cut Pro um, he he had edited it together and I was blown away um, I was really impressed with what he'd done uh, it was very meticulous and then um, I was also fascinated mostly with Dub and his his charisma um, and kind of obsession. He, you know, I, I was interested with this dynamic where he, was, you know, fixed septic tanks by day and then would solve crimes by night in his free time. And thought, well, well here's a character, right? Uh, so I, I wasn't sure if it was a feature or a short, but knew that Dub um, could be a central character for this. And, and we really didn't set out to make a film about the militarization of police, but rather started with the personal story of Dub, and then it kind of organically grew as he began to investigate other cases in his community. And, uh, Dub, what was your impression, or what were you thinking when you were approached uh, by Scott Christopherson and Brad Barber about participating in a documentary, especially when it's about something that's obviously so personal and 
such a tragic set of circumstances. But what was your impression, and and what what won you over to being a part of this? Well, actually, I had been involved since September of two thousand eight, uh, accumulating and putting together uh, all of the evidence and investigation, and learning everything I could possibly learn to try to figure out the truth because there were two or three different stories told by different investigative agencies, everything from suicide, self-inflicted gunshot, to exchange of gunfire, which resulted in his death, and all of those turned out to be less than truthful. Um, And I had been working on that for four years when I met Scott, And, uh, and so Things were happening, and I was beginning to look at other cases. Um, and when I when I saw Scott, met Scott, and realized uh, um, that he was professional and and uh, as a professor, a university professor, that that seemed to me to be a a, a good place to look for some help. Um, so when we began our conversation, I wasn't really sure what his reaction was going to be, but. Uh, apparently, he and and Brad Barber were uh, friends. Had worked on other projects together, and they were working on a, a, a project up in the Northwest Country. And he flew in from Austin, Texas, and he and Brad drove up. And apparently, they had a conversation all the way up and all the way back about the potential for a documentary film with all of the investigative materials and evidences and uh, things that have been accumulated. So, I was. Uh, Initially, uh, looking for help, uh, looking for a way to get an audience, to get an ear, somebody that would listen. We'd been four years in court with a wrongful death and had been dismissed. We lost on every turn. Uh, His father and my daughter filed a wrongful death suit and spent lots and lots of money uh, over four years and lost. And so I began looking at how and why uh, and, and it's because I was seeing it in every case like this across the country, the police always win or it's always dismissed. It's always a different outcome than if it were a regular everyday citizen who did the same thing or committed the same crime. And so that became a focus of interest. And um, so, yeah, it just evolved into a uh, something that I did not anticipate initially. I was trying to get an audience with the legislature. I was trying to change laws. I was trying to get people to listen to the truth and be interested in the truth. So well, what's happened is through this film, through documentary filmmaking, we were able to establish a credible um, uh, story uh, which is based upon uh, physical evidence of what actually happened. And so this has given us a voice in the court of public opinion because a lot of this evidence, as you're probably aware of if you're familiar with with rules of civil procedure and rules of, of evidence and criminal proceedings, we are picking up crime scenes and investigating and reconstructing what's left over after the police have contaminated the scene. So right. we have to first overcome the hurdle of uh, contaminated crime scene, uh, trying to learn the truth from what's left over. And amazingly, uh, if you do it right and investigate it thoroughly enough, you find all kinds of things that uh, we were shocked when we found 54 bullets. The police had apparently found about 31 bullets, and we found 54 that they missed in the Matthew David Stewart case, for example. And yeah. all the all the evidence that we were able to recover gave us a very good uh, ability to reconstruct exactly as closely as it as humanly possible. 
to what actually happened with his brother. It happened with, to your son-in-law, which is, the, the, uh, for, yeah. for people who are sort of film, for our film uh, f- aficionados, the film very much reminds me, it starts out in, 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 in ways that reminds me of the, uh, the Earl Morris film, Thin Blue Line, because there's a, there's a, your very no. careful reenactment of the, of the crime, of the crime scene, uh, where your your son-in-law was was killed, uh, it it has that f- feel to it, but it does. But moving on from there, uh, Scott, it it certainly evolves into this bigger picture, the story of what's going on, not only with the with Dub and Eric. And by the way, before we go any further with this, I think it's important to establish Dub your your credentials here. Uh, you there's uh, your your history. As a law enforcement official, tell us uh, in briefly a little bit about your background coming into this. Well, I was I was uh, uh, in the Marine Corps uh, in the '60s at the height of the Vietnam conflict, and I worked with the Battalion Legal Office uh, in basically uh, transcribing and sitting in uh, courts martial trials with the military. Uh, so I had an interest in uh, learning the truth and, and listening to witnesses and transcribing. And then when I got out of the Marine Corps, I, I came to Utah uh, to finish up my school. And uh, my, one of my first jobs was uh, I, I moved into the neighborhood with the chief of police. And we got acquainted, we bonded, and he asked me, you know, he had a couple of openings in an apartment coming up, and he asked me to submit an application. So I, I, I went to work as a police officer with Bountiful City. And then in 1974, uh, Nobody had filed to run against the incumbent sheriff, and so I did. And I ended up winning that election in 1974 and became the county sheriff, chief law enforcement officer of the county, and then brought with into uh, that uh, agency some new ideas and new concepts. Right. And, uh, and then as sheriff, uh, I eventually, uh, another job I had was uh, an executive security officer for the LDS Mormon Church. I I had the privilege and opportunity of being a, a bodyguard, security officer, executive security officer responsible for the safety and, and security of the president of the church. And so I, I had some great experiences in, in law enforcement, but my fascination, my I've always been drawn to reconstructing traffic accidents, crime scenes, uh, aircraft crashes, uh, and I've worked for with insurance companies and law firms and even after I left law enforcement, I still have always kept that uh, alive and uh, working most of the time pro bono for families who can't afford lawyers or, or, the, or the law firms can't afford to charge the families for learning the truth in cases that happen. So over some 45 years, I've just kind of kept that as, a, as either a hobby or a profession or uh, and, and, my, and working in this, my own business. The same thing. It, it's troubleshooting. It's learning, yeah. uh, determining what caused the problem, and then fixing it, you know, and and fixing it right so it'll last. Right. So it's just an own, I guess, a whole life, an adult life of solving problems and identifying the cause of the problem and then solving it. Right. So, well, so it's right down my alley. The thing I love and I'm good at, and I I, I, I don't yeah. want to sound like boastful, or, but I, I've done done it so long and so. Well, so many times and solved so many and been involved in so many that it kind of comes natural. Right. Well, this, 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 this skill set really served you well in the investigation of your son in law's uh, murder. 
And um, what I want to go back to Scott here because uh, get back to the the you you and Brad Barber uh, as as you got to know uh, William Dub Lawrence and his story and you, as you talked about earlier expanding uh, the story the cases seem to come out of, out of a lot of different uh, places in terms of. The, the reaction of the SWAT teams in in these situations where things seem to devolve into violence. Um, tell me a little bit about Scott in your worldview, sort of as you were in the middle of making this. Do- how long did it take to make this documentary? How many? How long did you work on it? Yeah, so we started shooting around September of 2012, and mm-hmm. and basically finished post production in January, February of. 2015, so a little under three years, two and a half years or so. Okay, so in the in the course of making this documentary, um, did you have a sense going into it that how how much of the the across the the country we have seen an uptick, a dramatic uptick in this kind of philosophy, this sort of militarized philosophy with the... I don't want to overstate this. T- correct me if you think I'm wrong, but this military military approach to policing, um, was that something that, you, you, as you made this documentary, it became more and more apparent to you? Tell me a little bit about your, your sort of mindset in this. Yeah, we... So, uh, initially, we're really attracted to Dub's story. Right. But obviously, as, as we um, followed Dub and, and through learning about Brian... Brian Woods' case, his son-in-law, and and the SWAT, the SWAT involvement with that, you know, we thought, wow, this is there. There were forty-six SWAT team members there. There were over a hundred officers there. It seemed a little excessive, and so thought, well, this this seems kind of um, improbable or unlikely in in rural Utah or in small communities in Utah. And we definitely thought this, this was strange because we kept see, seeing um, cases and officer-involved shootings pop up in in Utah, where I grew up. I wasn't living there at the time. I was living in Texas. Brad was living there at the time. And and we kept seeing these officer-involved shootings happen more and more. Um, and then, uh, of course, as we, we were finishing or kind of in the middle of post-production, Ferguson happened, and that... Us that kind of confirmed that what we were seeing in Utah and with Dub, what he was investigating was really a microcosm for what was happening nationwide. You know, if, if it's happening in um, in this small community in Utah, then sure enough, it's happening everywhere, and and that was the reality. You know that, uh, and along the way, we we had met with other people who who were really experts on this topic, like Radley Balco, who yeah. wrote. Uh, literally wrote the book on the evolution of the militarization of police in his book called Rise of the Warrior Cop, and he also writes for the Washington Post now. And he, you know, he, we interviewed him, and he kind of confirmed what we had suspected was happening nationwide, um, and and it grew from there. Well, one of, one of the mechanisms by which this is happening, uh, it, there are a couple of factors I think are important. The war on drugs is certainly kind of accelerated the the drive on the part of police departments to become w- better armed and 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 sort of uh up armored if you will in terms of that because there's a perception there seems to be a perception yeah. real or imagined that that's what you need but also the the, the various wars the United States has been involved in in the last uh, 15 years have 
provided a lot of this equipment to be made available to police forces. Talk a little bit ab- about that part of the story. Yeah, so there's a, there's a common a combination of both of those things. Um, there's a, a program uh, called the 1033 program that the ACLU has, has talked about a lot, where uh, government um, government gives surplus equipment to local police, and they have to use it or use it or lose it within a year. But I think the the bigger issue is, um, and Doug can also talk a little bit about this, is the war on drugs. You know, really started by Nixon, where these SWAT raids are are used as an investigative tool um, rather than a tool to defuse violence. Yeah. And and I think that's really where um, the, the story changes, right? Where now, since the 1970s, SWAT raids have really increased 15,000%, which means every year there's 50,000 SWAT raids. You know, just this huge number uh, of, of raids where they're using violent means for these nonviolent crimes, and that that causes problems. That's put that's putting the lives, the lives of officers and citizens in unnecessary danger. And Dub, you know, he he did it differently, and I think Dub yeah. could could even talk yes. about kind of what he did. Yeah, and I, but Dub, I, before you start, I I really want to be fair to law enforcement. I I, I don't want to just paint this as it, one sided because. It's not. There are genuine issues that that are that need to be addressed in terms of the approach of law enforcement. But at the same time, talk to us a little bit. You had a different, a very different approach when you were sheriff, uh, and I would be very curious to hear what you think of this this trend in in law enforcement in this regard. Well, um, from my perspective, uh, you're going not you're not going to get me to badmouth. Uh, law enforcement as a profession. Right, right. I, I, I have a, a long history of, of being one, uh, yeah. understanding the perspective. Um, what, and, and from the standpoint of militarization of weapons or uh, the increased use of weapons, there was a tremendous surplus, billions of uh, dollars worth of uh, leftover equipment from Desert Storm and our involvement in the Middle East after that concluded. Uh, you know, our industrial war complex builds a lot of military hardware and just to have that sitting rusting in warehouses and, and fields uh and compounds you know military compounds is congress uh, probably felt uh, that it could be put to good use law enforcement agencies could use it so from my perspective it's not the equipment that's not the problem mm-hmm. uh it needs to be put to good use if we're going to spend that kind of money to build it and use it and have it uh, it's not the equipment, it's how it's used. Uh, I went to California, Southern California, and trained uh, and learned about SWAT, and I brought it back to Utah in 1975 and implemented the SWAT team, created the SWAT team, and the idea was to give us the firepower, the training, the advantage, uh, and then to use that to diffuse and to use it to neutralize, to negotiate, and so my history, uh, the way I used it and the way I thought it was going to always be used uh, was to avoid anybody getting hurt or killed. And that firepower, uh, as a Marine, you know, I, I like the advantage. I like having the, you know, uh, the upper hand. 
because I know and I can control how I'm going to use it if I am professional and if I use it uh, in in conjunction with the oath of office that I took you know, to obey and support and defend the constitutional principles of our country, then it's not going to be abused or misused. And so approaching it that way, my history, uh, we never killed anybody. My SWAT team never killed anybody. But we negotiated, we neutralized, we diffused a number of life-threatening situations. And we served over 16,000 warrants. But we didn't kick in doors in the middle of the night with 10 guys with drawn guns, you know, busting down people's houses and kicking in bedroom doors and pointing guns at children and, and sleeping people. We just, in the middle of broad daylight, uh, just waited for the guy and watched and kind of surveilled him. And we saw the guy, watched him for a day or two. Time is in our favor. We don't have to do it this second. We don't have to do it tonight. Right. You know, you, you got a warrant, and uh, if you need to serve it, make sure that you know who you're going after, and and then stop him when he drives in the driveway. Just walk up and say, i got a piece of paper here. Uh, you're going to have to take care of this. Yeah. Uh, and, hi, hi, I'm, I'm Sheriff Lawrence, or, hi, I'm Officer Lawrence. Uh, uh, are you, you know, uh, the person that we're looking for? And if it is, you know, just explain it simply. This is a system. I mean, he's not guilty, in my mind, until he's proven guilty in the court of law. He's got a right to a trial. He's got a right to defend himself. He's got due process to look forward to. All I have is, a, is an order of the court saying that this person has to be uh, arrested and, and uh, brought into court, either uh, willingly or unwillingly. But normally, people, you treat them with dignity and respect, they'll usually help you roll their fingerprints. I mean, it's, it's a whole different world right. based on the mentality and the attitude and the approach. So I think we need to get back to that kind of approach rather than a war on drugs, a war on crime, three strikes you're out, it's filling up every prison we've got, bursting at the seams, or a war on terror that makes everybody fear for their safety in the country, yeah. fearing for you know our, our security, and uh, going overboard with the killing people unnecessarily, both police officers and civilians. So that's that's where we we tried to go with our uh, with with the documentary film, yeah. with the idea of getting a dialogue, getting very intelligent people, lawmakers, you know, uh, policymakers, uh, politicians, uh, as well as law enforcement administrators to look at policy, procedure, protocol, laws. And we've come a long ways down the wrong path, uh, violating the fundamental principles of our Constitution, supreme law of our land. So we need to swing that pendulum back to where it's reasonable and prudent and sane. That's where we're coming from, I think. Very good. Well, I, unfortunately, we've just run out of time. Uh, I need to let everyone know we've been uh, that the film is Peace Officer, uh, and it will be at the New Art Theater. You, uh, Scott uh, Christopherson as well as Dub, will you also be in town for a Q&A at, 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 at the New Art? Uh, we're going to be there for Q&As tonight at the New Art Theater and tomorrow night, um, and it should play starting September 18th uh, for at least a week, and we hope it continues and has a good run. Yeah, and, and, and it's also opening in New York at the IFC Center tonight as well as next week. I misread this. Next week at the Landmark Opera Plaza in San Francisco, rolling out across the country into Texas, uh, at Austin, Boston, Columbus, New Orleans, Washington, Philadelphia. It's ro- so it will be available around the country 
Um, and I so so thank you for first of all for being here on film school, and second and most importantly. Uh, for the work that both of you have done here, Dub, uh, for your continuing um, uh, presence in terms of making this issue something that we need to pay attention to, and to uh, Scott Christopherson and Brad Barber for the work that they did on Peace Officer. It's a terrific documentary, and uh, all the best to you in in moving forward. Thank you Thanks very so much, much. Mike. Th- with you. Thank you. Take care. Pleasure. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.